Podcast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group joining us on the PowerCast, and we'll be talking a little bit later about the X Conference 2008. Now, I realize that we've had, what, 103 episodes or 104 episodes so far of the PowerCast, and that not every one of you out there has had a chance to listen the three or four times that we require to our show so that we can ask questions later. So for those of you who haven't heard Steve Bassett's previous appearance, I'm going to ask him a few questions that will maybe cover old ground or maybe we'll cover the old ground in a new way so it sounds different and unique. So, Steve, thanks for joining us. And the first question I want to ask you is how did you ever get involved in this quote-unquote crazy UFO business? Well, the presence of extraterrestrials really got going in 1947 with uh, a huge mass of sightings. I was born in December of 46, approximately eight months prior to the Roswell event. So ET issue has paralleled my entire life. It's always been there. Uh, and as I grew up, you, you see this report, you, you hear this, something on the radio, you see some article in Look Magazine. So it's, it's dogging you, literally, certainly me, right down through time. I had a great interest in science. Uh, that's what I was best at. So uh, uh, I read a lot of science fiction. All of that played well into this background noise of these these entities coming and going and being seen, and, and uh, to some degree, something was being said about it. Uh, and then I went off and did other things. And later in life, I came to a point where I really was not satisfied with what I was doing and involved with. It, it didn't really, in my opinion, didn't, didn't have much importance. So I wanted to, to do something significant. I wanted to get involved in something I felt was, was important. Now, some people at that point would go off and uh, join a food program uh, and do work in, in Africa or who knows what, right? Join Greenpeace and go buzzing around in one of those uh, runabouts they have, dogging whaling ships, whatever. My choice when the time came for me, which is uh, back in 1995, was to consider this issue and uh, see if it was substantive enough to get involved in it. I checked into it, looked into it, and discovered just how far it had come since I was a kid and how significant it was. It was particularly uh, impacted by the fact that John Mack of Harvard had gotten involved. And I read his book, Abduction. That was very impressive. And to me, a milestone. I went to a conference, saw the state of the researchers, how they were presenting, all that, and concluded that this issue was ready to pop, that, that we were approaching probably some sort of break point. It wasn't going to stay in the background any longer. It was it was going to burst forward. And uh, and so I said, I want to get involved with this. And so I punched in. And I entered the field, technically, in uh, January of 96. Now, before this, you had a day job, or you still have a day job? No, I did. You know, I, I, I got involved in business and stocks and bonds and things like that long ago. That, that didn't interest me. I got into some business consulting. I'm very independent. I, I don't like working for other people, so... I I moved around a lot, did various things along, uh, along the lines of business consulting, but it didn't amount to anything, really. I just hadn't found myself. I hadn't found what I wanted to do. I hadn't found who I was, either. And what I was was a political activist. I, I, I had clues about that. There were hints when I was younger, but I didn't listen to them. But when my time came and I plunged into the field, then the next thing was, okay, you're in it. What part of it do you want to deal with? It's a huge field. You just you can't do it all. And uh, that somehow the political activism 
emerge to say, yeah, that's what you want to do. And as soon as I started that, as soon as I went down that path, I immediately knew that was the right path. Okay, in terms of political activism, how does that apply with UFO research? Well, that's the big big deal. To make a long story short, the issue had been one of citizen science and keeping track and making notes and uh, forming citizen groups for decades, trying to, quote, prove the phenomena. That was the approach, and uh, that's perfectly fine, but it wasn't going anywhere, really, uh, ultimately. It wasn't resolving the issue, certainly. And the reason uh, that it wasn't resolving the issue is that the government had formally decided in 1952 that this issue would remain sequestered, embargoed, as I prefer to call it, and established a policy that he would not acknowledge, no matter what it knew, he would not acknowledge this ET reality, and went further. It undermined. It tried to undermine the efforts of, of, of private citizens to to look into the issue, and um, did other things to diminish the issue, ridicule it, ultimately to ghettoize it. So we, we really had a, a a conflict between reality and government policy. This is nothing unusual. You see it all the time. Governments don't necessarily have an appreciation for reality and are more than willing to delve into surreality if they uh, if, if the government feels it serves its interest. There was a real problem. You could rack up all the sightings you wanted. You could record all the events you wanted. It wouldn't matter. The government wasn't going to do anything about it, and the whole thing would just sort of stew, which was a problem because the ETs kept coming and going. I mean, it, it, it was a constant thing, and, and so you've got to deal with that. It's not like a single event. You're hiding, a, you know, trying to cover up a single event. These things keep coming and going. It was a daily thing around the world. Real problem. So what's required is a political solution. The government has to change its policy. And uh, I, I realized that, and I realized that that's where the next phase of this has to go. Uh, the government has to be challenged directly on the policy. And in order to do that effectively, it was critical to make a decision about the ETH, which is short for extraterrestrial hypothesis. Where do you stand on it? In other words, if, you, if you're going to make a political if you're going to enter into advocacy, if you're going to enter into the political process, you have got to know where you stand on the issue. You don't have to in science. In science, you can you can r- remain in a state of doubt forever if you want to. Uh, you're just following the scientific method. There's no guaranteed certainty. Nothing is certain in science, though things are more or less accepted depending upon the amount of proof and all of that. But the scientist can remain in a constant state of doubt and feel quite comfortable about it. This is not the way politics works. This is not the way society works. So I concluded after not a whole lot of thought, because I'd been following the issue for years, that the ETH had been proven. And, of course, in the 13 years I've been involved in the field, that's only been confirmed to me many, many times over, that the previous 60 years of work, or 50 years of work, rather, by the groups and the people and the scientists, uh, the citizen scientists, rather, had proven it many times over. You know, so, I want to ask you something here before we progress about yeah. that. Now, you said at the beginning you are basically dating the beginning of the UFO era as 1947, but those who have studied the subject realize there are sightings that go back way, way through the dawn of history. What do you think about UFO that? Era. Sure. The modern UFO era, which is the one that matters because it's obviously uh, leading to something fairly big, starts in 47. But, yeah, there's plenty of evidence that these things have been coming and going for as long as we can go back in time. Certainly, we, I mean, we, we can even go back before the flood, uh, or before, quote, the, the events of 7,000 years ago that 
clearly were dramatic. We've got cave paintings that are 32,000 years old that uh, mm-hmm. clearly seem to show saucers. But beyond that, we can't really go. I mean, we have to we have to guess. But if if they've been coming and going for that long, one can assume they've been coming and going. One could also assume that prior to the rise of of a self-aware uh, species, which would be humans, though the the dolphin family also has a long history, and one can make a case that they're also self-aware. So I have to put that off to the side for a second. But if you go back far enough, one 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 could calculate that they might not have come as often. In other words, the lack of a self-aware species made us a genetic, uh, clearly a genetic, uh, extraordinary genetic uh, biosphere and worthy of checking out and worthy of probably taking resources from time to time. But I can imagine that they may have come and gone with some infrequency, but who knows? But for some reason, once humans turn up, I'm sure the frequency, the sense is the frequency probably increased. And then once we broke through certain technological barriers in the first of the 20th century, they really started turning up. And then after we dropped the bombs, created the, the atomic bomb, they just exploded on the scene. So there seems to be a pattern here, some sort of a connection between their amount of their engagement and the degree of both sentience and uh, technological sophistication. I'm speculating, but the evidence is, is compelling that there is a connection. The evidence, Stephen, is also compelling that maybe, just maybe, and, and we always have to preface all of this because really um, looking at the situation, it's hard to say a lot of things with any certainty, but maybe there has been involvement in genetic manipulation of humans that we are not aware of. I mean, certainly if we look at the history of, of biology and we look at evolution, there are some very puzzling questions that, that arise. Yeah, I'm confident that they've, uh, my confidence, I have a certain confidence that they've dealt with this genetically. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence for that, particularly in the abductee contact reports. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me at all, but I can't say that with certainty. I can, there's only one thing I can really say with certainty about ETs. That they're here, right? That's a certainty. That's not even in my. That's not even. There's no no doubt at all. It's not even a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a percent. Beyond that, though, certainty starts falling off because we just don't have the information. We don't have enough information. Right. Uh, for instance, are they telepathic? I'd say that the, it's very likely. The reports seem to be very strong. Yeah, there, but at ninety five percent there. Yeah. yeah. Do they come? Do they come from another dimension? I, I would say that's maybe a five percent possibility or less. Do they come in, 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 from time? Can they travel in time? I'd say there's a couple of percent possibility there. Uh, so obviously. Okay. Not well, certain. why would you ascribe specific possibilities to something? Because the end result would be the same to us if they came from the future. If they came from another dimension, we would still see the same things here. Yeah. Well, there's two points there. One, yes, uh, it doesn't matter to me where they come from. I mean, they are not from here. They are not born on this planet in in uh, in the present time so they are extraordinary they are extra right terrestrial and so that's a big big deal so it doesn't matter where they come from okay so they could be from another time another dimension but your definition of extraterrestrial then encompasses not just another physical planet you know 40 light years away but maybe the future a thousand years from now whatever or maybe even another dimension well, there, there is a distinction between dimensionality and time travel, I will admit. Dimensionality, well, in, well this, this, there's, a, there's a subtler point to be made here. In the absence of the government 
simply allowing this thing to be properly investigated and, and bringing out what they know and, and bringing it in the open and stop playing games with it. In the absence of that, we've had to pick and prod at it with, with very incomplete information, trying to figure out as best we can what's going on. Now, not surprisingly, a whole range of theories are in play, and they're not resolvable. They won't be resolvable until we have formal acknowledgement of the ET presence, and there's no barriers put up between properly engaging the issue. So in the absence of of a proper status for this, we, we speculate a lot, and uh, that's why. And you have to. That's why you have to be constantly in the, the, the position of assigning some probabilities to what's going on, because you, you don't. You can't go up every street, every road. So if somebody hits you with a theory that's got a probability you're in at one percent, you're not going to invest time in that. But if somebody's got something that looks at eighty, ninety percent, that's where you want to go. Okay, but, so, but I, I don't think I'm really getting the answer here. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 1995, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 1999. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David You never know what's going to happen next. 
On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we're talking with Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. We'll talk about the 2008X conference soon. But, okay, it's the factor of ascribing a certain percentage to a probability. On what basis do you do that? Because oh, it sounds oh, oh, kind I'm of just, arbitrary. I'm picking numbers. I'm picking numbers just to give a point of reference. I, I, don't, I don't have a calculator that I'm doing this on, so uh, don't, don't put a lot of – probably a better way to go would be low – medium yeah yeah high fair enough enough. here's the thing guys okay let's and steven uh, just so you understand gene and i really believe that what you're doing is important work okay let's just get that right out of the way we like you would love to see the government give up what they know we think it's it's essential because clearly there is a program of disinformation happening here there has been clearly uh, a reality that the government is sitting on a bunch of information that they won't let go we i think Nobody who listens to this show is going to debate that point. No one. And I think that's, you know, if you look at Richard Dolan's book, uh, UFOs and the National Security State, it's clear that the one thing that Richard proves beyond any shadow of the doubt is that the government is sitting on a huge amount of information, some as some component of the government. It's important for us to say that, you know, is it, you know, who is really in control of the purse strings in this stuff? Well, that's a good question. And boy, if any of us had the answer to that, it would be great. Now, here's an important point, though, to make about, you know, your percentages. Here's the thing. If you have a species that is able to travel between stellar systems, okay, so if we're going to posit that these creatures, whatever they are, are coming from a different planetary system, I think at this point it's, it's fairly safe to say they're not coming from Venus or Mars. They're coming from another planetary system. Now, given the distances involved, any kind of interstellar travel is going to involve the manipulation of space-time. It's absolutely necessary in order to get across the vast distances that we're talking about, especially if we recognize, and what you said is, is absolutely sure. accurate, that the, the amount of activity of these creatures went up significantly after we displayed nuclear capabilities. All of a sudden, boom, things exploded. Now, if we, if we take that to be true, and it's absolutely true, no, no disagreement with you there either, that would signify... I think for, for many people listening to this, that however they got here, they got here quick. Because it's, you know, if, if all of a sudden this activity started and boom, they're here, uh, they probably weren't circling the planet waiting for this to happen and boom, came right down. Here's the thing. Interstellar travel implies interdimensional travel. And if you look at quantum mechanics, particle physics, that's clear. So when we talk about percentages, I'll, I'll throw a percentage up. The chances that these are interdimensional, and when we say interdimensional, that whatever these things are, are using interdimensional travel methodologies in order to get here, I think is 90%. Uh, now, now we, we, have a, we have a terminology problem here. We're, okay. we're, we're mixing some apples and oranges. Uh, I understand your point completely. All right. We need to distinguish between understanding an understanding of physics that allows a manipulation of space and time, or simply a manipulation of the physical world right. in order to move between their large distances without suffering the consequences that we ascribe to relative, relativity. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, okay? In other, words, you know, in other words, someone can fly through the air with a propeller plane. Someone can fly through the air with a jet plane. They have mm-hmm. different, you know, they're both flying through the air. They're both going from one place to another, but they're using different science. They're using yeah. different aspects of science, and so they, they have different results. That's one thing. 
But what people generally are referring to when they talk about interdimensionality, you know, the, the um, man in the street, woman in the street have become quite captivated with string theory and the idea of multiple dimensions. It's all cool and wonderful. Most of them have never read a single book about it and may right. never. But the, the, the fact is that the idea of dimensionality has been brought into play before, but it got really uh, strong play when the string theory uh, came out as we move, as, and, and some of the popularization books of trying to develop a grand unified theory or GUI. And so the idea of multiple dimensions for people has become to mean that they're in parallel worlds. So you're operating in this dimension. There is a eighth dimension. Someone else is operating up there. They're literally, they have a whole contained reality there. And they have found the ability to move from their reality, from their dimension, into yours. That is what you know, people are talking about. And that's uh, something else again. And, my, I, I, again, I ascribe a pretty low probability of that. Occam's razor says that's not needed. It's not necessary. However, uh, if you're talking about are they manipulating the dimensions that we are com commonly uh, aware of, such as space-time and what have you, in their travel, I'd say it's very highly likely they are. But again, we're talking about two different things. And as far as time travel, that's another ballgame. But one thing is clear. Whether they're, if they can go through time or whether they're literally able to go from one dimension to another or if they're able to travel between star systems using, quote, a version of warp drive, which is to say they have transcended the speed of light and are able to move from one system to another without right. having thousands of years pass on the planet from which they came, they're using extraordinary technology in either case. Sure. So one thing, one other thing we know about their presence is that they represent an interface between our technological reality and an extraordinarily a different and advanced technological reality, which if we had access to could be quite profound. So that, that's a fairly straightforward calculation, which you know, can have high confidence in. Uh, and another reason that, that the disclosure probably needs to take place, we need access to that tech or at least versions of it, uh, even in a limited way, because we are facing insurmountable problems now globally for various reasons, our limitations as a species, mistakes that we've made. And uh, I've never seen any, anybody able to make a case that they, these problems can be overcome without dramatic technology. We're, we're no longer in a position anymore where we can solve our problems by going backwards, meaning if everybody will just go live off the land, Leave the cities. Yeah, no, no, forget it. That's, that's over. That ship sailed that's a long time ago. sailed absolutely clearly. Now, here's the other side of that. You look at what we've done with the technology we have. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear that human beings are essentially very violent monkeys. We are. I mean, it's just a reality of the species. It's not a comfortable reality, but it's a reality nonetheless. So here's the problem. All right, you have zero-point energy. What do you think we're going to do with it? If we had it, let's say it was presented to us here. Here's the machine. Hmm. Here's what you got. What do you think we would do with it? Well, we have a pretty clear track record here. All technological development heretofore has been used for good and for bad. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that, that's subjective, too. I mean, good and bad is subjective. But let's just say that they've been for what we'll call constructive means, constructive projects, as well as destructive projects. It's always been. So nuclear energy. We, we built nuclear bombs. We've only dropped two. But we've also built quite a few nuclear power plants, which are powered, you know, God knows how many billions of, of uh, lots of uh, electricity been generated by these, which we certainly needed over, this, uh, over the 20th century. So, uh, so overall... While we certainly threatened each other with nuclear weapons and made, made, made ourselves all very up, uptight, we haven't used them. And in the area of biology, 
we have done extraordinary developments in biology which have allowed us to to accomplish great things certainly in the area of disease prevention and whatever we've also used biology our, that knowledge to create some biotech bio, bio, bio weapons that we use very, very only a few times there's a limited number of times we've done that but yes the threat is there so we have a record of uh, now if you go to lower tech as you get to lower tech interesting enough the lower you go in the technological ladder the more that tech gets used for destructive purposes uh, let's take the idea of the of the simple gun and the bullet right projectile right if you look at that tech by it's pretty simple tech it's not complicated at all uh, and if you look at it, you will see that overall it's had a limited constructive use, primarily as a means to kill game and generate some food on the table, right? Beyond that, not much. But on the destructive side, my God, the amount of bullets that have been fired, the amount of people who have been killed. So I would make the case that the higher you go up in the technological realms, the more likely that you can control the use of that technology, and the more likely you can you can direct it to the constructive as opposed to the destructive, and that's what the track record shows. Now, ultimately, though, uh, it's a worldview issue, right. and uh, we we either start changing our worldview, or we will continue to be destructive. And we could have a nuclear war tomorrow, and everybody would have to say, "See, see what we told you." Right. However, we don't longer have a choice. It's simply not an option anymore. We, this idea that we're going to solve our problems or get through this century without dramatic technological uh, interventions, uh, but uh, they can't be dangerous. In other words, it all has to be tech that nobody and anybody, even if they had unlimited resources, could, could turn into a weapon. That's ludicrous. It isn't going to happen. So our, our, our die has been cast. We have to get that tech. We have to use it for constructive purposes, and we have to start working on our worldview our politics and our global perspective to ensure that we don't continue to weaponize everything that comes down the line. The very fact that these ETs exist, given the power that they have, the abilities they have, is testimony to the fact that there are sentient beings out there who have been able to achieve technological levels of sophistication without destroying themselves. So we do have a template there that perhaps we can uh, do the same. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the podcast.
Hey, let me tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. We'll talk a little bit later about the forthcoming X Conference 2008, and we'll talk about the list of speakers and everything. Wanted to bring up another thing here, which is government disclosure. And the question is here, how much do you think the government knows? Is it just maybe the government says, well, we don't know what they are, therefore we don't want to admit that, because how could we admit that we have things flying around our skies willy-nilly and we have no control over them? Or do they have some more deep, dark secrets about it. What do you think? What I think is they know a great deal, a great, great deal. They've spent billions of dollars uh, studying this issue. They have built substantial underground facilities where they're doing research on who knows what, whatever they want to, and the ET tech research is all there. And they've had vehicles in their hands for decades. So uh, I think they know a great, great deal. So uh, the issue of disclosure is non-trivial. What was the second part of your question? You, you asked, what uh, do I think they know? And then you said something else. It was another part of that question, you recall? Well, I was asking you, what do you think they know? And because I think the suspicion here is, could it be the government just thinks that they don't understand what's going on? And maybe oh, that's yeah, why yeah. they don't want to reveal the thing you can't say. Yeah. It's not just politically incorrect yeah. to say it. You don't want to admit that, that you can't control what's in our skies. Um, you see, that's, the point is we already know they can't control what's in our skies. So it's like they don't have to admit to it. We already know it. So they're just, they're just confirming the obvious. Clearly, the, the, the people of the world have been watching these things come and go for 60 years, millions and millions of sightings. There have been many instances where chase planes have been set up. They can't catch them, right? And right. while they may have shot some down in the early days, in the 40s, which is a very interesting point to, to discuss, uh, they quickly stopped. There is a uh, there are some researchers that have done have done some analysis of that time and believe that uh, we did shoot some down or certainly try and then they dropped a whole lot of our planes out of the sky and then we immediately stopped because we realized ooh not a good thing um, so they can't control it and 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 we know that so it, it's the re- there are, there are many reasons for not disclosing there are many reasons for disclosing it is a very complex subject but disclose they will. Because they have no choice. They're, you know, it's like, take a secret like the Tuskegee experiments. The government did some experiments on black men uh, and syphilis and so forth that were, well, very Nazi like. Gorbals would have been impressed. Uh, no, not Gorbel. The other fellow who was a doctor, Mengele. Mengele would have been impressed. Yeah, and that's not something they wanted to, to get out. It was it was a thing that happened. It was on. Some people knew about it. It had always been sort of discussed. It was in the background, but in terms of kind of a formal thing, they didn't want to get it out. It was history. It was over. It was done. And yet, in time, uh, after not that many years, they finally admitted to it and apologized. That's a, there are many examples like that. Governments frequently have to sort of say, "We screwed up." This is way different and far more profound. Uh, not only is it we're dealing not simply with a, 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 a ill-advised uh, medical uh, research program done on a limited number of individuals at some given time. We're talking about the very nature of the universe. Not only that, this nature of the universe is encroaching in our world all the time. It's coming and going. We're seeing the craft. There's thousands of contact reports coming in. And so the idea that uh, the government, in order to simply avoid being embarrassed, will simply uh, will hold will hold the line indefinitely 
makes no sense at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. The failure of the government to, and all the first world governments, to acknowledge this ET reality, and speak to it, bring out information, and engage us in the presence of all the phenomena that's going on is an enormous embarrassment. That's the embarrassment. And when people misrepresent reality to you, you don't trust them, right? If you've got a good friend, a, a spouse, a child, and, and any of them dramatically misrepresent reality to you, like where were you this weekend? I, you know, I was, uh, I was in my room studying when in fact you were out driving around with friends. You, you, you start losing trust in them very quickly. Well, guess what? People are losing trust in government all over the world. Well, in this, in in this country, what is it? Congress has a 15% approval rating. Yeah. And, and, and that approval rating is, is uh, trust is a major component of that approval rating. You know, if you trust somebody and they make a mistake, you don't immediately hate them or your steam collapses. Everybody makes mistakes. And so it's not just the government makes mistakes. The approval rating are as low as they are for the executive and the Congress and the press because the people believe they're being lied to on a mammoth scale. Absolutely. And as this trust level drops low enough, it starts to literally disrupt everything, every process that's going on. Every, every, you know, our, our society hangs together on the basis of a of billions of actions and activities and transactions that go on every single day. And as trust levels drop, it's like, it's like increasing the resistance in a wire. The electricity can't get through. And so the wire just heats up. And so things get harder and harder to do and the, and the heat rises. And so our society is hotter and less functional. It's given off heat but no light. Uh, we see this everywhere. Uh, so we're dealing with, in, in, in the truth embargo, we are dealing with uh, a, a milestone moment where uh, a major dysfunctional circumstance, which, which emerged out of the, the late 40s, is reaching ahead. It's coming to a head. And uh, what's at stake literally is uh, the republic, world stability, millions if not billions of lives, uh, enormous amounts at stake here because we're, we're not dealing with a, a minor injury. We're not dealing with a, a ward on your knuckle. We're talking about massive, systemic, dysfunctional process, which has been operating for 60 years. And if it doesn't get dealt with very quickly, it's going to kill the host. It's a big deal. So trust is a major factor, and so you, you can't keep lying to people every single day. Every single second of every day, the government is lying to us about the ET presence, right? In other words, that's a one continuous, ongoing, perpetual lie. And, of course, after a while, you don't think about it. You just know what's going on. So it's, like, it's not like you're constantly aware of being lied to. You now, it's a given. You get up in the morning, though, you're being lied to. You know it all day, and you go to bed. But you don't think about it much. But it operates in your subconscious. It eats away at it. And your respect just slowly just melts away until finally you don't believe a damn thing they say. You don't care a damn thing for what they do. You don't want to vote anymore. Maybe you want to move out of the country, go somewhere else. Or maybe you just don't care. Maybe you want to turn to crime. You don't know. But you certainly end up taking a lot of mood-altering antidepressants as well as a lot of and acids because overall you're stressed. This is where we are today. And lying to the American people and lying to the world's people about the very reality of the universe ain't helping at all. So my answer is if you don't want to be embarrassed, tell the truth. Well here's the here's the thing about that, Stephen. As you were as you were describing it, I thought to myself, well, that's all true, but I think the reason that people are not sleeping at night and they're not trusting their government is that essentially 
uh, our economy has been bankrupted. Our country has been sold out from under us to military industrial contractors. I think the problem with this whole discussion, and, and we run into this problem every day with doing the Paracast, you know, you, you've got a topic that's critical, it's essential, but in the, in the scheme of prioritization, people don't spend time up thinking about the government embargo on the truth about UFOs. I, I, I know, speaking to my own friends, hmm. who know that I'm really interested in this topic, they think it's it's kind of fascinating in one way, but in the other way, it doesn't. They don't feel it affects their bank accounts, their stock holdings, their ability to pay their rent, their mortgages, to feed their children. So I think the problem with this is that, and 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 I don't want to even believe this is true. Okay, I'll qualify it, but I think that if tomorrow there was a major disclosure, people would say, "How does this impact my bank account?" Oh, it doesn't. Well, then what the hell do I care? Well, first of all, so, it does, and they'll figure that out pretty quickly. And I guarantee you, they will engage it in the issue in a profound way. And you'll, you never, you will never see anything like it as long as you live, and you never see anything like it. Well, I hope you're right. Well, I'm just telling you what will happen. I may be right, I may be wrong, uh-huh. but you've, you've gone into a very important area, and another reason why the truth embargo is so dangerous. Let me uh, make a simple analogy for you. Sure. Uh, think about all the things going on in your life right now. You have, I'm sure, like all of us, you have a whole range of things. And you have prioritized them, of course, in various ways, money, finances, relationships, whatever. Okay. Right. And so if I ask you to list a a thing of priorities of what is uh, important to you and and what you would address first if if, uh, when you get up in the morning or in terms of planning ahead, you'd list them. Okay. Now, I'm going to throw one in there. It turns out you have a growing, a fairly, you know, modest size, but, and, and clearly dangerous tumor growing on your liver, but you don't know about it, okay? But let's say you did. Let's say that you found out this morning that you had that tumor. Oh, yeah. Where would that tumor and dealing with it be on your priority list? Well, obviously, go to the top. Go to sure. the top. Okay, but if you don't know about it, then, well, you can't put it at the top. Right. So it doesn't get dealt with because you don't even know about it. It's not even on the list at all until one day you do know about it, but it's too late and you die. That's the problem you have with secrecy. When the government apps in, uh, operates in secret, when it withholds information, and the more profound the information, the more this point is important, then you have a situation where the average person may has their priority list, and there are things that should be on that list, but they're not because the government has secreted them, like the tumor and the liver. And so when a government operates that way, it has the ability to keep the citizens in the dark and dramatically impact their choices. And if you make choices with incomplete information, you're more likely to make bad choices. If there's something that needs to be addressed, but you don't know it's a fact, you won't address it. And whatever the consequences of that will be, what they will be. And so secrecy is ultimately fatal if it's practiced long enough. And in a serious enough manner, it's always fatal. It's fatal in relationships. It can be fatal, you know, just on an individual basis. People who go into what we'll call denial, essentially what they do is they try to pretend that certain things that are, aren't. And they go into denial. And we've, 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 we've seen people like that in our lives all the time. If they go into denial sufficiently well, they kill themselves. So we are a society in denial, being denied information by our own government. So our priority lists are all skewed, if not bogus. 
Let me ask you another question here, which you kind of raised there, and that is about what the government may or may not know. Maybe they know there are advanced craft flying in the skies and all that stuff. Would it be possible that, as some people suggest, we have had contact with them, our government, the, the highest levels have had contact? And it also follows what about, for example, the theory voiced in the book The Day After Roswell. There was voiced as a fact that we have taken the wreckage of crash UFOs and reverse engineer their technology. So let's look at both questions here. First, mm. have we had interaction? Number two, have we tried to do something with technology from crashed UFOs? Yeah. Uh, let's take the first one. I, I would ascribe about a medium, high-medium probability to that one, that there has been contact. Uh, well, first of all, all right, first of all, there's been plenty of contact all right, on an individual basis between people and ETs on their terms, not ours. We put that, let's put that aside. Well, you're talking about formal contact between ETs in a somewhat formal way and our government. I put that at medium high, not high medium, but yeah, high medium rather, which would be roughly for me around 60%. I'm very suspicious that's happened. There is, there are hints and allegations. There are hints and you know clues here and there uh, that that makes makes uh, makes the case, but it's not beyond a reasonable doubt. But it's a good case. Now the implications of that are significant, no question. And uh, there's no question that in a post-disclosure world, those would be some tough questions. But there's plenty of precedent for that. People, you know, have, have uh, in the 20th century constantly learned about, quote, secret negotiations that have taken place between nations over this and that and everything else. Sure. Uh, they know it happens all the time. So the idea that secret negotiations took place with ETs would just be an extension of the terrestrial. But there are potentially some awkward uh, issues there. In terms of the tech, yeah. Uh, they've got the tech, they've developed the tech, and according to Corso, some of the lesser-known stuff they tried to introduce, uh, meaning they, they provided provided some ideas from what they were gleaning to the commercial sector uh, for whatever benefit that one may derive, and they were limited by what they could go with. They, they couldn't just hit them with something profound because that would have endangered the truth embargo. And, and, and I, so I believe Corso's thing. Where things get tricky is that Corso, I think, had an over... I think he overappreciated how much impact that had, and so he tended to give the impression, uh, though some of this would be ascribed to Bill Burns, who, who wrote the book, that uh, these texts virtually we owe owe that transfer of info from the ET government foreign tech stuff uh, for the creation of these things, and I don't think so. I think that we would have had that tech regardless. I think there may have been some benefits from it. And the idea of, in, of providing a little benefit uh, in order to enhance uh, United States economic and technological prowess is hardly odd or unexpected. So people attack it and say, well, clearly, you know, we would have had the transistor without that. So, of course, it has to be a liar. Well, no, not at all. Well, maybe we it's really, just a jump starting. Uh, you know, who knows? We, we, sure. without, without a complete uh, disclosure of the entire history and the process and the people involved in exactly what they did with it, which we may never get, we'll never know what the impact was on the foreign tech, uh, the tech uh, foreign technology desk actions under Corso or through Corso. But... But that's nothing compared to what they have in the facilities. 
because what they have is that is the energy and the uh, propulsion. And there's been enough sightings of craft operating over bases in a way that clearly indicated that they were operating within the some sort of protocol on that base that makes us I think makes a very strong case and I have a high probability on this Hey listeners did you know that Fate is the oldest and best known publication on the paranormal well since 1948 Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists ghosts and hauntings UFOs and aliens as well as readers true personal mystical experiences for under $20 you can keep up with all the latest information to subscribe call now at 1-800-728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. And before we progress to the final portion of the first hour, I just want to ask you very briefly, you have the X Conference 2008 coming in April, later in April, since the show is being heard in early April. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us briefly what it's about? And we'll ask you more about it later on. The fourth Exopolitics Expo, the conference I started in 2004 in order to, again, further the advocacy of the issue and further the political process toward resolving the issue with disclosure. This is our fourth one, and uh, it's in Gaithersburg, Maryland, same place, April 18, 1920. Uh, Full and complete information is at the website x-conference or x-conference.com. That's the letter x-conference.com. Or, you know, there's a big banner on the paradigmresearchgroup.org portal, paradigmresearchgroup.org. You can jump over from there, and you can see the speakers, the schedule, and the whole nine yards. We have uh, three the members of the legendary aviary will be presenting aviary which was a group of uh, men who interacted and corresponded with this issue over a period of a number of years, and they gave themselves bird names to sort of have some fun and also maybe for a little anonymity. They are legendary, and you can, if you Google aviary UFO on uh, on Google, you'll find out why. Uh, John Alexander, Dr. Bruce McAbee, and Dr. C.B. Scott Jones will be presenting on Saturday. Jesse Marcel, the, the most important living Roswell witness, will be presenting on Saturday. Then we have a keynote situation on the banquet that night, which is quite extraordinary. George Norrie of Coast to Coast AM and will, AM will give a brief keynote, followed by the former Defense Minister of Canada, Paul Hillier. And then the main keynote will be by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14 astronaut who walked on the moon and has spoken to this issue repeatedly for the last 12 years. That's Saturday. I think you can immediately sense this is not a UFO conference per se, and this is not the kind of UFO conference that one would have gone to in 1962 or 72 or 87. When you have defense ministers of the first world nations, and he's not the only one that spoke in this issue, and astronauts with PhDs in astrophysics, this idea that this issue is some sort of misunderstanding on the part of uneducated people who live in rural areas 
and uh, are easily spooked by things in the sky is an asinine, stupid, insulting, condescending concept, which we need to rid ourselves as quickly as possible because it insults the intelligence of the entire American people. It is a huge embarrassment to our press, our colleges, our universities, and our government, none of which can afford to be embarrassed any more than they already have been. These are the kinds of people that are coming to these conferences. We have Dr. Tom Ballone, who's the leading expert in alternative energy, I think, in the United States, with a substantial amount of knowledge about what we think are the ET-derived technologies that are available to us. Uh, we have uh, Grant Cameron, the leading researcher on the intersection of the issue with U.S. presidents, and a co-author with me of a book we hope to get out soon. Perry Hansen and Rob uh, Simone will be talking about the press and their engagement of this issue. I will be opening the conference on Friday morning with a 60 minutes uh, talk, to, uh, which I'm going to title uh, Passing the Torch and Remembering the Past, uh, sort of a foundation for why exopolitics is important, but why the past is as well. Also, we have Angela Joyner, who's going to be coming in and presenting. She is the reporter who wrote up most of the initial articles on the Stevensville signing, Stevensville, Texas. Pretty significant signing. She'll be there. Uh, so this, these are, this is, a, uh, again, a sample of what we'll be having. We'll have a party on Friday night at banquet on Saturday night. This is at uh, April 18, 1920, x-conference.com. We need people to come and lend the support to the effort to bring this issue to Washington, D.C., which is why it's held there. All the, all the presidential candidates were invited. Well, I had three declines, and then the rest did not respond. Do you actually expect that they would even show up, a presidential candidate, to something like this? I don't even expect them to respond, but I did get three declines, which is progress. Uh, and then all the members of Congress will be invited. In fact, that letter is going to go out in a couple of days. Oh, and invited in order to send a staffer. We've had a few staffers come. But we, we, this, is, this is our way of saying we're here, we're not going away. When are you going to deal with this? Plus the political press. I get some press there. And we always have a lot of I mean, a reasonable. And then we'll hold a press conference on Monday morning, and all the attendees are welcome to come. Not not a lot do, but we usually fill the room pretty well. Uh, and that press conference, we'll have some announcements, and that'll be at the National Press Club. It's, all, it's a matter of showing the flag and saying we're here. The issue is not going away. We're not going away. When are you going to do your job? When are you going to address this issue? When are you going to stop lying or stop covering up or stop embargoing? Whatever you want to call it. When are you going to stop playing games with reality? Right? You tell us things are there when they aren't. You tell us things aren't there when they are. How long do you think you can do that before we throw you all out? Start over again. Well, right? there are a lot of reasons to throw them all out, Stephen. I mean, at this point, there are tons of reasons. So here's, here's sure. one of the issues, though. And before I ask you the question, I just want to say that last year you invited me to attend, and I did attend the X conference, and uh, it was the first conference related to this topic that I attended, and so far, clearly the best. And one other thing I'll say to you is that the lineup this time around, I personally feel, is much stronger than last time. I think this is a this is an improvement that you've implemented here. So just it's different. Uh, the first one we had thirty-five eight speakers, it cost ninety thousand dollars. The second one I think we had. Twenty-eight. It cost uh, $60,000. I'm losing money. I'm losing lots of money. Yeah, uh, yeah. And the third one, I had to pare it down a little bit more, and we pared it down more. But I'm, I'm, I'm focusing more on themes. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get certain things across. And this conference has got a very significant point behind it. And that's why it's called the Insiders. Um, the Insiders 2, actually. And this is the point that I, I hope your listeners will understand. I have never viewed this as a war. In fact, I'm sick of wars. I'm sick of declaring war on everything. War on poverty. Amen. Amen. War on this. War on drugs. War on, you know, yeah, terrorism. Terrorism. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. 
it's crap. And so I, I never viewed it as a war. I never viewed it as us against them. It's not the citizens against the government, right? It's not the inside against the outside. There is a process that's gone on for the last 60 years, and it has two fundamental histories that are relatively distinct. One is the citizen outside history. Everything that people outside the government, many of which may have worked for the government, but then they then they, they left and retired. Uh, many of the early researchers were retired military because they had a pension and they, they had time on their hands. But right. whatever, they're outside and they're and they're pursuing this issue. They're forming groups, NICAP, FUFOR, KUFOS, uh, MUFON, and so forth, and, and and doing sightings and writing magazines. All that's a, that whole history, and we know that. There's another history though, and that's the history, uh, the full history of the government's interaction with the issue, going right back to forty, the mid forties. Uh, or the, the war, the Foo Fighters. That history we 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 only know from the outside looking in, and we have a very we, we have a very obscure. Uh, it's opaque. We don't we don't know uh, much, so we have to do our best, and 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 and, and great effort has been put into that. But what we know about the government's involvement in history is probably a few percent of the whole story. We need to know that story, and and and, and this this time, this birthing moment that I call it, is is the sum of those two histories. The government. And not only our government, but the other first world governments, how they dealt with it, what they did, how they built the truth embargo, how they interfered with the, with our with our efforts and what have you, in in the interest of national defense and all that, is a huge story. We need to know that story. And ultimately, we're all going to go into the new paradigm. We're all going to go into enter the post-disclosure world together. Nobody's going to get left behind. The post-disclosure world comes for all. And so I'm, I'm increasingly wanting to try to get to those inside people and, and let them know it's okay to come forward. Let them know it's okay to speak their mind. That we don't need to... The day of the games and the, the back and the forth and the spy versus spy are pretty much coming to an end. I think we know that. They know that. But they need to be told it's okay. Tell us what happened. What did you do? A classic example of this, a perfect example of the insider, in my opinion, is Richard Doty, who worked for AFOS. He was involved in the truth embargo because of all the disinformation efforts. Eventually, he talked about that. He spoke into that. And uh, some people are, uh, think that's good. Some people don't like that or, or they, you know, they don't like what he did. They want him to go away. But uh, I admire the fact that he was candid. I admire the fact that he came out and spoke about it. I want more Richard Doty's to come forward. I wish I could have got him to come to the X conference, but he's not comfortable. Well, actually, yeah, we, we've actually asked him to come on the, uh, the Paracast. He won't do it. The problem there, Stephen, is that Richard Doty's a liar. And so when, when somebody lies as much as someone like him does, then how do you trust anything he says? And, and this, of course, brings us to the problem with trusting what the government says, which is we know the government has lied to us so much at this point that I think it's probably fair to say that it's almost like the old joke. How do you know a politician is lying? His lips move. You know, you, you, you've got the government is going to you know potentially say something. How do we get anybody to believe anything the government says at this point? I mean, when you bring up Doty, he's a great example. You need to, you need to step up a couple levels of sophistication here. All right, okay. this is not this is not simple stuff. It can't be reduced to simple black and white, good bad. Doesn't work that way. The fundamental job of the entire intelligence community. Well, no. One of the fundamental tasks of the entire intelligence community is to lie for the state. All right? It's to misinform, divert, disassemble, and to prevent our enemies, quote-unquote, from doing us harm. That is the nature of intelligence. Right? So the people that work in that area lie under orders for a living, and we're happy that they do, by and large. Most people don't complain about that. Um, that is the nature of that realm. So the idea that somebody who 
is, is, is been working in that realm, right, uh, as a disinformationist. You call them a liar, you've got to be careful here. Now, that doesn't mean that if they, if they leave that world and they then get into the, the general population and they continue to misrepresent, that's notable. It could mean that they're still kind of on the job. It could mean that they have a difficult problem and that they can't simply say exactly what went on. They're having to play games. But clearly, once a spy, always a spy. Once an insider, always an insider. So we have to be careful here. We have to be really careful. Plus, you know, if I had a, if I had a nickel for everybody who is, felt that somebody else in the field was lying about something, I'd be a rich guy, sure. and I know that for a fact, not everybody who's been accused of lying about this necessarily is lying, and not everybody who's been accused of anything is necessarily what they are. We are, remember, operating with incomplete information. We we were we were ghettoized. We were forced into a closed area by the government, put up a ridicule wall, a wall of ridicule all around it, and said, "You can't. We're not going to let you operate here. We're not going to let you do what you want. We're not going to give you all the information. You're going to have to operate in this some." degraded situation uh, and that's the way it's been for 60 years so it's a mess and that mess was created by the state and so we have to I encourage people don't play the state's game look you know, the person acts inappropriately they act inappropriately and if they if they mislead deliberately and it does harm that has to be addressed. I understand that, mm-hmm. but most of the most of the accusations that fly around in this field are primarily a function of this degraded intellectual ghetto we've been stuck in by our own government. So I I'm very reticent to to quote go after or make accusations within this field and, until such time as the government relents and ends this embargo and we get in a post-disclosure world where basically we're in a new situation, new rules, we start over again. Then, uh, you know, people need to take a little more closely, held accountable for how they're going to function in a post-disclosure world. But right now they're in the pre-disclosure intellectual ghetto of ufology created by the state, and it's the state that must be given the principal onus for this. It is the United States government's decision to embargo this issue that is at issue here. Not whether Philip Corso saw an ET in a cave or didn't see an ET in a cave, right? Not whether that researcher's got this right or that person's got that right. It's about ending this policy because until we do, this is all a lot of strum and drum, which is getting us really nowhere. And for some of us, Stephen, some of us who are experiencers, this is more than just a political topic. This is a personal topic. Yes, indeed. Um, okay, so let's just qualify that. I speak on the on the part of the experiencer, which is that I know what I've seen. I don't need a government of any sort to tell me that I haven't seen what I've seen. It's very clear. I don't need to. I don't need to go to that place with the government because I know what my experiences are. At the same time, the government is made of people. All right. The government is not. It's like the corporation. The corporation is an entity, but that entity is made of people. The government is made of people. Mm-hmm. What is clear about Richard Doty is that he has a long history of disinformation. Now, disinformation is a ten dollar way of saying mm, lies. Actually, that was another, his job. That was his job to be a right, disinformationist. That, that's great, and I'm sure he did his job very well. Meanwhile, yeah. he is not a strong source of information regarding true understanding. And I think that it's important in this field, what I've come to understand as someone who's been delving into it for a couple of years, 
is that there is a tremendous amount of noise. Some of it is generated spontaneously. Some of it's generated by design. Doty is a guy who's generated noise by design. So in, in, in separating signal from noise, one has to try to, if nothing else, diminish the effect of the noise. And so, like any other field, look, you know, I, I come from the world of high tech, where you have a lot of people who have agendas that have nothing to do with furthering technology, and you deal with them. And you know, if you're a technologist, like I am, then basically you learn how to, you know, ba separate the marketeers from the technologists. Very important task to do. Let's do our break. That's a good point to break it. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we've got Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, and they're putting on the X Conference 2008. We'll continue after the break on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We're back with part two of the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We have Steve Bassett joining us for his second appearance on the Paracast. We're in the second hour of the show talking about disclosure, what the government really knows. What about the governments talking to one another? Do they each keep their own secrets or what? Well, once again, we don't have any direct information about that, but uh, we certainly know, we know for a fact that the intelligence agencies of all of the countries, first world countries, are in communication with each other. Uh, we know that. And that communication is privileged. So in addition to whatever diplomatic and commercial interactions go on between us and Australia or us and Canada or Canada and England or France and Germany, whatever, in addition to all that, and us and Israel, there are communications and interactions going on between the intelligence community of all those nations. So the idea that they could uh, communicate with each other with respect to the ET issue and what they are doing or not doing about it is trivial. Uh, and the idea that we would know about that information, obviously we wouldn't. So now, admittedly, the ET issue has, has been well managed and, and, and entirely held, uh, I think, by all the countries. And what that means is, is, that, is that we know it's compartmentalized. Pretty sure it's compartmentalized. So that you have you have cross agency committees is the way I refer to it, where you've got unacknowledged representatives from each agency that will meet in one group, and maybe another unacknowledged uh, the person from each agency might meet, meet another group, and uh, they they would then deal with the issue, whatever knelt, need, needed to be dealt with, and people in their uh, apparent agencies might not even know, with the exception of maybe one or two people, might not even know they're doing this role. So it's 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 been well carefully, you know, couched this way, and, I, and it's probably similarly structured in all of the, the, the first world nations. So the majority of the intelligence community in each nation may may not have any direct uh, information or involvement in the issue, just a limited group, and they would then communicate as they saw, saw fit. All of that would be easy to do, not difficult at all. Well, uh, it, it, and it certainly seems like the in our country there have been presidents that have attempted to go after some of this information. And yeah, to, yeah, yeah, and, but with limited success. Sure, presidents are not not are considered liabilities. I mean, mm -hmm. by and large, elected officials. This is another uh, outgrowth of the the process that began in 1940s. 
uh, we have these massive intelligence structures that exist in most of the first world nations, lesser in some, clearly, with ours being the biggest of all. And uh, these entities, this, this intelligence, uh, military intelligence group, they generally view elected politicians as a liability. Right. Uh, they they see them as temporary and transient. They see them as not in the know, oftentimes flawed. We see all that too, uh, but they see it from a special perspective. And so they they are not eager and never have been eager to inform them about anything. You have to pull them up to the hill. So when it's done, you pull them up to the hill and you and you put them in hearings, usually private hearings, not not public. And you query them. That's how you get the information. They don't they don't come rushing up and volunteering. Uh-huh. And uh, with respect to the presidents on this issue, there's no question it's been the embargo has included the presidents to a, to a lesser or greater degree. We're learning more all the time, and Grant Cameron, of course, is the leader in that research. I think you know, the, the, the earlier presidents, like uh, Truman and Eisenhower, were in a very good position to have gotten information. Then it, I think, went downhill pretty quickly. Uh, some presidents are clearly in a better position to be informed. Uh, George Bush, for instance, George H.W. Bush, is in a whole nother uh, league from, say, a Bill Clinton in terms of having access to that information. Well, yeah, he had head up the CIA at one point, so you figure his level sure. of just just connections was much deeper. Absolutely. But the point is, it's his background that got him that information, whatever he got, not the fact that he was president. So, and, but, and I fear, though I cannot prove, that the ET info, the poop on the ET reality, is not the only poop that the military intelligence community withholds from sitting presidents. I suspect there is more. Uh, and uh, that's a as, real, real problem. As in what? Well, there's an unlimited and infinite number of possibilities. Let's just pick one. This is not my issue, and I don't pursue it for sure. all those in, this, in, the, in, the, in those structures that might be listening in. Let's just speculate that the CIA had a substantial drug operation operating at one time or another, or even still does. That's conclusively proven, I think, in many ways. Sure. Some, some say, some say it has, some say it hasn't, yeah. but let's just say that it has. Uh, and the new president comes in, you think they run over and give him a quick briefing on the CIA drug running operations? Mm, I doubt that. No, no. No. And that's just for one. We could go on and on and on. It doesn't matter. I, I call it the secret empire for a reason. It's secret and it's an empire. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's huge. Do you think that every president gets a tour of all the underground facilities out there in the West? I doubt if, uh, if all the presidents since Truman have spent more than... 100 hours, if not 50 hours, 20 hours, pick a number, actually in those facilities. Cumulative. They don't get to go there. They're told in some respects that they exist, but they don't get told, I'm sure, all the things that exist. You have a second reality. Some call it a second government. It's not a second government. It's a second empire. It's an empire. It is operating in a profoundly independent way, not so much to govern, but rather to, to exist. It exists to exist. It doesn't govern us, right? The stuff going on down in some underground facility a hundred feet below the surface or a thousand feet below the surface in, in a military facility with, with almost zero chance that any member of the press would ever get down there, or certainly any normal citizen could even get within the gate, inside the gate. What's going on down there has nothing to do with the governance of America. It has to do with agendas and issues that they want to pursue within their world. It is an empire to itself. It is the greatest threat to the republic since we were created. 
without question. It doesn't mean that all the people in it are, are nefarious or are evil, traitors or anything like that. No, not at all. They're all they're all employed members of the United States government, in one form or fashion, being tasked to do various things. And in many cases, they only know limited amounts contained by the field that they're in, that what they're working on. Uh, probably no one of them could tell you where all the underground facilities are if, if they wouldn't know. Right? They may only think theirs is the only one, or above ground facility that's fully classified and totally off the off the radar. Doesn't matter. They don't know. So I'm not. It's not about evil people. It's about structure. It's about policy. It's about functionality and dysfunctionality. The creation of the secret empire was ultimately a mistake, and it needs to be uncreated. We'll either do it or we won't, and the consequences will be thus. It's a simple deal. Now, again, to get back to the key point of the earlier first hour, one of the great problems with the secret empire is a secret. So you go to the person in the street and you say, what are, you, what are we going to do about those underground facilities in Nevada? What underground facility is in Nevada? Right? What about the ET technology? What ET technology? And so forth. And so think of the secret empire as a tumor in the body politic that now is the size of Montana. Okay, big country, big tumor. What do you do? You got to shrink it. You can't excise it. It's too big. You kill the host. It's going to be excised. Shrink it, right? Contain it. You don't know where to shoot the radiation. How do you shrink it? You don't. Oh, know that's true. Well, it, yeah, it's not. It's not a giant tumor the size of Montana. It's a metastasized tumor. Yeah. Thousands of locations, equivalent to the side of Montana, if you brought it all together. Yeah, it's like that. Again, I call it a cancer. That's that's to make a point. That doesn't mean that it's that no, that uh, that's everybody in it is, is cancerous. It just means that it, it's become. It, it, in other words, at one time, it had a function. Okay, it, it served an important purpose. It has it has transmuted. It, it is now as much a liability as an asset. We still need intelligence, of course. We still need to quote develop technologies and be de- and to be able to defend ourselves. Okay, we still need to be able to conduct some things without a lot of interference by the general public. But is there a limit? Of course there is. Have we passed it? Oh yeah, long time ago. In a larger question, in a larger scheme of things, though, what would some kind of disclosure mean for the general population? How would it affect? religious organizations, how would it affect people in their daily lives, knowing that something, whether it's ET or other dimensions, whatever it is, something is out there that is ever-present that we do not understand. How would people react? The answer to that question would easily fill two or three full semester courses at any major university in the country. Of course, they would never teach that. So it's just, the answer is simply huge. And and, uh, uh, and I've answered that question before, but we could easily kill the rest of the show. Let's just say this. Disclosures that will be the biggest event in human history, the most profound event in human history. If you define profound in the state of the breadth and scope of the impact of the event, how rapidly it involves society, the degree that it involves society, and all of that, Okay, under that basis. Now, some would say, oh, no, 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 the birth of Christ is the most important event in human history. Okay, from one point of view, perhaps it was. But from the criteria that I'm putting forward here, when Christ was born, nobody even knew it. Right? When Christ died, very few people knew it. It took hundreds of years for just a concept to get around. Right? It was a very slow-moving process. Retroactively, it seems to have been pretty profound, though ultimately it's encapsulated about a billion people. There's a billion Christians. The disclosure event 
will impact everybody. It will change the life of everybody, all 6.234 billion, wherever the hell we are right now. It will happen overnight. It will be dramatic. And because it's happening in the age of satellites and cable and the computer, it will be like a massive explosion of interactions and queries, questions, information, introspection, reanalysis. It will be unlike anything ever seen before or you will ever see again in your lifetime. It is the most profound event in human history. So that in of itself is enough, right? Now, you can try to parse it out and say, well, how's it going to affect the Catholic Church versus the Muslim religion? How's it going to affect this nation versus that nation? How is it going to affect women versus men? And on and on and on and on. You can go and be like, and, you know, ultimately we're not going to know until it happens, right? But it will affect them. I think overall, the we've overestimated a lot of the dire predictions about how it would be effective, I think, are, are overstated. And by the same token, to a lesser degree, there are people who are understating uh, or underappreciating some of the negative that will come from it. Not, nothing surprising about that. And as I've said many, many times, and I'm more than happy to repeat because it's a, probably one of the most important messages that everybody needs to hear that care about this or trapped, you know, and listen to it in this show or any other show, oh, yeah, is nice. that expect to, to have things happen and learn things which are going to really excite you, uh, amaze you, astound you, motivate you, inspire you, and also expect to learn and, and, and learn about some things and maybe see some things which are going to upset you. It's not going to be all good. It's not going to be all bad. It's going to be a little both. And that's nothing surprising. I mean, if you look at the, the, the evolution of human history, if you look at the rise of civilization, we're constantly going through various transitions, and good and bad things come in, get together in the same package, and we deal with them both at the same time. This is, there's nothing new about that. All right, let's, let's play a game and model this, because I love modeling things, Stephen. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in, in, in modeling technology in lots of different ways, and so let's model this for a moment based on what we know about the phenomena, let's for a moment say that disclosure happens and we have uh, a high-ranking member of the government or the military stand up and say, all right, folks, we've been keeping this under wraps for 60 years and we're going to tell you what we know. Here's what we know. What we know is that human beings are an engineered species, that everything we, we've come to believe about the history of evolution is inaccurate, we're an engineered species, an entirely engineered species. There was no missing link because basically uh, the, the genetic line was manipulated. And these beings, which have been living on the planet since before mankind was here, because remember, they made us, they put themselves forward to us as gods in order to control us because they recognized that in many ways we were difficult to control. And so basically uh, what you now have to do is realize that uh, your treasured religious institutions are not exactly what you thought they were. The history of mankind is not what we thought it was. And um, these beings are very concerned that we are about to destroy ourselves, which is why they won't engage us directly. And I'm not saying that's what it's going to be, but let's model it. Well, I mean, that's one model. I mean, right. you could, we could think of thousands of, of models. Okay, before we discuss the model that David posed. Well, there's a lot of problems with it. Sure. Like a lot of problems with that particular model. Yeah. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Steve Bassett, who is of the Paradigm Research Group, sponsoring the X-Conference 2008. So David presents this model. What are your problems with it? He's presenting a model of the disclosure itself. Sure, sure. Right, and, Which and, creates uh, the impact. The impact sure. and, and, and the impact would be is unstated yet. Well, first of all, before we get into specifics of the model, disclosure I don't believe is going to happen that way anyway. All right. The way it will happen is, uh, and remember, of course, uh, we haven't said this before, I, I, disclosure in my lexicon has a very defined, it's a very tight definition, all right? It is the acknowledgement of the UT Pluses. That's it. It's a, with a capital D, all right? Because it's quite specific to th- uh, that one thing. So it, we give it a capital D. It's the acknowledgement of the UT Pluses. That's disclosure, nothing else, right? Everything else after that is post-disclosure. So disclosure will happen in a day, and it won't be a single individual. There will be a, a, a briefing. There will be a lot of people at, at the dais, a lot of people at the table. It will be very similar to the briefing they put out for the Mars rock in 97 uh, when they thought maybe they had seen life, uh, possibly in a rock that came from Mars. Big deal. They really underestimated how over underwhelmed we were going to be about that, but whatever. So it will be along those lines. A big, broad panel. They'll have a moderator. The moderator will make the initial announcement. Uh, the president will probably have announced the thing in advance without necessarily getting into the specifics, but making it clear that the president approved it, whatever. And then we're going to have a brief. They're going to then acknowledge the AT presence. From that moment forward, right, how much information we get and what we learn and the quality of that information will be a direct result of a substantial tug of war that will go. I've used that word war. I don't like that. It, it would be a result of a very substantial uh, engagement between the public and all of its representative institutions and the government and the secret empire, really. And it will go on for some time. So the point number one is they're not going to just come out and tell us all the stuff you just said, even if it's true. You will get a limited amount of information. They will make it probably pretty clear up front that they can't 
tell everything because there's still plenty of national security implications. They're going to they let the cat out of the bag, but that's you know after that, it's going to be couched. And the, the, what we learn as we learn more, it will it will be over time. It won't be in a week or a couple of weeks. It'll be months, a couple of years. The stuff will come out. Some of it will will be reluctantly brought forward under great pressure. Some of it will be brought out at their convenience, but we're happy to get it, whatever. And the picture, it will be like a giant, huge puzzle, one of those giant table puzzles, and they will start bringing out the pieces, and we'll slowly start putting the pieces into that puzzle, and it will slowly shake shape. That will, that will tend to mitigate, to some degree, the shock and uh, give us time to digest. Nothing wrong with that. And but it can't go on too long because there will be such massive speculation and massive introspection about this that all kinds of stuff will get tossed out in the net and into society. A lot of it will be will be completely off the mark, and so they don't want chaos. So they need to keep an information flow, and that's what they'll do. So that's point number one. Now, with respect to the model itself, look, I can come up with all kinds of scenarios that are far scarier than that. But let's just take the very first one. We're an engineered species. Guess what? Most of the world's people... Well, actually, a significant portion of the world's people already firmly believe that we are an engineered species. We were created by God, designed by a God, a supra-being, right, who made us in his own image. So this concept of being, quote, an engineered being will not be a surprise to anybody. Now, let's, let's assume that uh, there's been an interaction uh, between us and them that has altered our genetics. No shock there. We've been altering our genetics for countless generations, intermarrying between races, right? And we, we're fully aware that when you do that, you, you mix genes from different races, you get a whole variety of interesting people, different colors, different shapes, different sizes. So there's nothing odd about that, only in this case we've got some alien DNA. Cool. Most of the kids, by the way, will just absolutely go bananas. They're going to think that's the coolest thing going. Because, oh, fuddy-duddies that are getting a little weird about it. The kids are also ready for this. It's not even funny. That's not a shock. No, but what, what, if, what if we were really engineered, meaning, man, they just completely, everything, most of all the good stuff that we think we got going for us, they gave to us. Without that, we'd still be swinging from trees. Well, gee, what, what's the point? If they hadn't done that, we wouldn't even be here. We wouldn't have this discussion. I wouldn't be able to go eat a hot fudge Sunday at the, at the, you know, the street. I'd be swinging from trees. I want to swing from trees. Ah, but what if they genetically engineered us to be their slaves? Ah, now we're getting somewhere. All right, now things start to get a little dark. All right, why did they do this? What are their intentions? Are their intentions good or are their intentions bad? This is where things start to get interesting. Mm-hmm. Am I am I an alien slave? I don't think so. Does that mean that uh, you're a slave? You don't have the uh, if you're a slave, you don't have the luxury of uh, of free will and thought. And let's remember something here: if you're talking about introducing people the notion that they're an engineered species made by a superior species that is not the creator of the universe, I think you have a problem. I think maybe you're underestimating a little bit the tenacity. And the sheer brainwashing of fundamentalist, uh, the fundamentalist religious movement. I don't think I so. I've talked to plenty of them, and I, I, I've, talk, I've talked to a number. It's not, it's not going to be a problem. First of all, we are made in God's image. All right. Well, what? The ETs are involved. Okay. Who made the ETs? So, if ETs quote 
helped shape our genetic heritage. God created them. Ultimately, God created the world and created us. The mechanisms, eh, right? A lot of mechanisms. I mean, you're, you're smart. Believe me, plenty of fundamentalists are quite smart. Uh, they have degrees in physics. They have degrees in science. They're not all, well, actually they're far more sophisticated than most people give them credit for. The thing is that they understand all that there's plenty of things that help shape right, the human being. They know that. Uh, ultimately, though, at source, God created us. The ETs are just one more of those factors right, along the way. That's how it will be debated. Assuming that comes out, I mean, it, it, again... This idea that disclosure immediately leads to that kind of information is a big leap. There's plenty of stuff to learn and plenty of stuff to know before we start getting that deep. Listen, Stephen, I'll go one step further. Um, It's my belief. I don't know. I believe, so I don't have data to back this up. I believe that one of the reasons that the government or operatives within the government, let's get specific, have been withholding this information is that maybe there is a reason for that. You know, and I, and I think about oh, yeah. this. The awful truth scenario, yeah. Well, if the military of our country is engaged in establishing an environment of security, right? This is like a primary goal mm-hmm. of the military. What do they do? Well, they, they keep us secure. Yeah. And then I would submit to you that anything that would create an environment of insecurity is something they have to work against because hmm. this is their mission to provide an environment of security. Fair so, enough. right. So, if you have a, a information that leads to a potential reality that would create a severe amount of insecurity, it would be the military's job to make sure that doesn't happen. In a totalitarian state, yes, but we're not that. And well, that may be not for we one chose try. not to be that. <laughs> No, 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 no. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. We're not yet a totalitarian state. The point is not to get there. We're not there yet, right? But could we get there? Yeah, ultimately. And by allowing that kind of stuff to go on, we are speeding up the process. Mm-hmm. Look, the military has a job to protect us, of course. Does it matter how it does? Absolutely. For instance, if our American military were to launch invasions of, say, four, five, or six countries without telling us, well, we'd, we'd, we'd cashier the entire command corps, right? But they would say, no, 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 you have to understand, we, we identified a whole bunch of various threats. And we knew that if we told you that we were going to invade or even let you know we had invaded, that this would upset you and that would just be disruptive. So we invaded, we went in, we killed a lot of people, we did this, we did that, we're done, we're back, and we don't want to talk about it now. Well, the CIA I mean, does they, that, though. Wait a minute, but how do you qualitatively differentiate that from invading two countries in an occupational uh, fashion, we, we, you know, there's no war with Iraq. Let's be clear. That is, sure. that is an occupation of a sovereign state. That's what happened. All right. Yeah. Now, it was done under completely false pretenses. Mm. Of course, anybody who read the PNAC documents online knew exactly what was going to happen because those guys had been uh, uh, forward enough to put their plans online for the whole world to see. Sure. So this happened. And where was the great outcry on on the part of the American people? That's a valid point, and it it makes for a very interesting discussion, but it misses the key point that we're discussing. They did go and invade these countries. They did do what they did, and they did it in the open. We knew what was going on. The American people thus have the option to deal with it, address it, and correct the problem if they so wish. Whatever they choose to do, they can do it. Right within certain limits, 
The problem with the ET issue, as you posted, which is in fact the correct way it is, is that they have the government is saying we we have to deal with the ETs, we have to do this, we have to do that, we have to defend, we have to weaponize, we have to do it, but we can't tell you we're going to do that. We can't let you know what we're doing. All this is going to be done in secret. Well, no, why, why is that? Well, no, no, this is so heavy. Unlike a rock, raiding a rock, big deal. Afghanistan, no big deal. You, we knew you could handle that. You've seen so many war movies. You've been around the bend. There's war, endless war, so you're used to war. But this is really heavy. This is really wild and crazy stuff. And if we let you know about this, you're just going to be so upset. And it's going to be disruptive. And, and our job as a parent to you, the child, is to is to make your life as secure and, and undisruptive as possible. That's exactly their position. And I say that that's, in fact, anathema and unacceptable. Now, there is a perfect analogy to this, which I've mentioned many times, and I'm going to pound it again. And you only have to go back 60 years. In the mid-20th century, medicine started to really make some headway. Uh, really started to make some headway. And we entered in that period from about 40 to 1955, the golden age of the uh, family doctor. Uh, doctors were viewed like almost like gods. Sure. And you had this, you know, turn up in like Marcus Welby shows, these other shows where, the, you know, we had all this. Okay, fine. And, and it, was, it was justified in a way. They were bringing information and helping people, and people were really happy about that and very impressed. And so they were powerful father-like figures in our culture. And during that period, it was not uncommon at all for a doctor who had been a family doctor working with a, a, you know, a patient that they'd known for years. And eventually the patient comes in and they do a re- and, and they discover the person's got an operable cancer, cancer of the pancreas maybe or, or the liver. They have some symptoms. Doctors would literally make the decision that given the fact that it's inoperable and therefore incurable, there's something that would be done that rather than upset the patient and have the, this person they've known for a long time, maybe even friends with, have to go and agonize about that, they would simply not tell them, not for now, until things got a lot worse. That way they could have a few months, maybe a little longer, of less stress in their life and enjoy what time they have left. Okay? They did this. If a doctor were to do that today, they would immediately be brought up on charges. Disband, I mean, uh, disbarred, not disbarred, but uh, removed from the medical profession. Yeah. And their license would be removed. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay. Now, there, you know, there, and we understand why that is. All right. It is an increased sophistication and awareness of the social contract that, that has happened in that time. Well, this is exactly analogous. There is nothing that I have ever seen, read, or heard that leads me to believe that the managers of the intelligence agencies and or their subordinates or the officers in the military are of such a profound quality, uh, are so gifted, so extraordinary, so unusual, so above and beyond the common citizen that they have the ability to take on that burden of interacting with a reality of extraterrestrials and all that implies and whatever else is going on and deal with it privately and secretly without it endangering us or without screwing up and more importantly that they are so quote above and beyond the average citizen that they can ascertain that we couldn't handle the information but they can't Hi, this is 
Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net ray perkins a reclusive veteran burned out from the gulf war lives tortured by relentless perplexing nightmares nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world a woman not yet born calling across centuries to him then a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack, Attack of the Rockwoods. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. On the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, we have Stephen Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, and we have the X-Conference 2008 coming up later in April. We'll talk more about that in a moment. David? Okay, Stephen. So what you're saying makes sense, but are these the same military people who are in the underground bases, who are seeing the things we haven't seen? I mean, at that point, they're making that decision, right? Somebody, I mean, the whole part of the military hierarchy is that at some point in the hierarchy, somebody makes a decision to essentially embargo the information. Yeah. Now, the people that are working in the facility, look, they don't make the decision. The decision the decision about the embargo, that is all handled relatively high up, again, in, I believe, cross-agency committees. So you've got a group will get together to meet to discuss, quote, uh, maybe a brash of recent sightings. The O'Hare sighting, the Stevensville sighting, the Phoenix lights, whatever. Big sighting, all kinds of hubbub going on, people are acting, and they're concerned. So they'll call a meeting. And so an individual from the NSA, from the CIA, from the DIA, from the, maybe the Air Force, whatever, who are designated to, to engage this issue, but they're not acknowledging stuff. They're not, they're, these people's names aren't on any rosters. There's no list of them. They are designated by a limited number of people, perhaps the head of the agency, maybe not, maybe somebody further down. They are assigned this. They go. They meet. They discuss. They make some decisions. 
and then those decisions are somehow going to be implemented by the agencies in some form or fashion. But overall, and you can bet your bottom dollar, no notes are taken. Right. Right. No record. They would operate this way. Though they may be keeping a record if they feel they can secure it, because there is a history here, which is incredibly important and cannot be lost to to uh, multiple further generations. But who knows? Whatever. Nevertheless, it's pretty limited. But these inventions are pretty sharp. They're probably relatively high up. But they're, I don't. But they're not. You know, I don't think that the Secretary of Defense would be at that meeting, or even the head of the NSA would be at that meeting per se. Uh, but it's not out of the question. It just depends. It depends upon who they're comfortable with. I think as you move through time, you have individuals that turn up on the scene, right, or evolve within the agencies. And I think they, they will they sort of decide who they feel comfortable with, and they will let them in, right? And if the head of the Department of Defense or the head of the, you know, the, I mean, the uh, Defense Secretary is whatever, somebody they're comfortable with might be let in. If not, they wouldn't. Again, not good in a way. There's some, there's, this is kind of governance by committee, but over big issues w- without oversight. And do you, you, do you think that, and I, and I do not think for a second that, that the, 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 the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence or the House Select Committee on Intelligence knows who these people are? No, absolutely not. Okay. Right. So, so, but that, that's relatively high up. It's relatively high up, but it's not the level of Congress. And it's probably not the level of the president, uh, with a rare exception. But nevertheless, it's high up. So it's not the people down the labs or out of Nevada that's making the decision of disclosure. It's, it's these people inside uh, government. And we know some things about that. We know, one, that since 1999, direct harassment of researchers seems to have disappeared. We know that since 2001, well, that, that yeah, primary since 2000, uh, quite a few witnesses have come forward and spoken and written and whatever, and, and they're not getting bothered. We're getting virtually no, no reports of anybody being bothered. So whoever these managers are, they are not, they're not interfering. They, they've withdrawn what we call direct inter- interference. That's notable, highly notable. Secondly, we're seeing actions on the other part of other governments, and the United States is doing nothing to blunt that. Right. Or the, the, the French do a committee report uh, in 2000, and the U.S. government could have maybe put pressure on the government and the France don't do that, you know, stop there. But I don't think they did. And now a few years later, the French start dumping all their science reports out of the net. So there seems to be clearly a uh, a, a policy of, of evolving within the government that they're not they're not really taking direct action to to stop this process. So I think that reflects some kind of decision. It's been made. Now, I hear rumors that, in fact, yeah, decisions have been made. I've heard rumors that, that, that the overall consensus has moved to disclosure, but these are just rumors. The summing of all that I've learned in the last 13 years has put me where I am today, and what I'll be, you'll be hearing plenty from me about over the next five, six months. And, and that is that I think that uh, my guess is, my assessment is that the disclosure decision has been made, and they, they're planning on doing it in the next administration. Regardless of who who wins, uh, but I think the Democrats have got a leg up. Very complicated discussion, but the upshot is is that I think the stage is set for the Democrats to to win in in November and then disclose in the spring. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why I think this, and I'm saying it publicly. I'm going to be repeating it frequently, and uh, if there are those in government that disagree, then I welcome their input. And they can get back to me and tell me why I'm full of it. But I've got a deep suspicion, so I'm I'm telling everybody to start thinking spring of 2009. Now, if McCain wins, I think it still happens. I think that uh, 
the Republicans. I mean, I, I believe the military intelligence community can deal with McCain. I think I think that he is he's tricky, but uh, they have some respect for him. But the reason that it's not in play uh, with the Republicans, uh, but it is in play with the Democrats, is because. The Democrats do not want this to happen under Bush's presidency, and I'm pretty sure that the military and intelligence community doesn't want it to happen under Bush's presidency either. And so they have they've definitely pulled in the reins. And uh, while they're not moving to block the processes underway in the country, the witnesses, other countries, they're not they're not going out of their way to accelerate it either. They want him. They want Bush gone. Uh, so. The Democrats, of course, are in a different position than, say, a registered Republican member of the of the uh, Truth Embargo team. They, they they're looking for even bigger game. They they don't only want to see disclosure. I think they want they want the legacy. So they have powerful political reasons for not wanting Bush to be disclosure president. I think the military intelligence community have much more uh, pragmatic reasons for it. So the Democrats have made some maneuvers, and uh, you know Richardson came out on the subject. Uh, Podesta, who's a major player in the Democrat, came out on the subject. So I'll go even further. I invite all your listeners to go to the website ApolloAlliance.org or Google Apollo Alliance or Apollo New Apollo Project. There is something in the background that that was announced in 2004 when the Democrats thought they were going to win. They thought they were going to win that election, and they, they didn't. And then it was immediately pulled off the table after that. And it was a coalition of, of uh, think tanks and uh, unions and all kinds of stuff that was saying they came forward at a big press conference, the National Press Club. Most people have still never heard of it. But again, you can you can tra- find the trail by going to ApolloAlliance.org or Googling the Apollo Project. Here's what the Democrats intend to do. Uh, John Podesta will be one of the key architects here. He's going to be one of the key intelligentsia behind it all. And the New American, uh, the Center for American Progress is going to be uh, a major player. The Democrats know that the United States is in extremely bad shape and that the last eight years have, have, have taken some of the problems that existed, were developing from 1970 forward, and basically taken them to, taken them to the wall. And they're, they're really up against the wall when they come in. They, they need to do something truly dramatic in order to prevent some very, very bad things from happening. And I think what they plan to do is an FDR, a technological version of FDR in 1930s, mid-1930s. He instituted, as we know, a public works program that put lots of people to work and generated economic benefits. People, though, were going and they were logging in Tennessee and counting trees and all kinds of stuff, right? Basic stuff, but it put people to work and they were damn glad to have it. This is obviously not the 1930s. They plan a a massive technological version of FDR's programs where they're going to throw enormous amounts of money into developing whole new massive uh, technological development projects, primarily environmentally centered. And the idea is to put millions of people to work, but not simply counting trees, but all the way up and down the line, right up until your top engineers, top scientists, working to generate whole new technologies, primarily focused on environmental issues. And because this is all generated here, they're not going to be able to offshore the jobs. So so this stuff, these jobs are going to stay home. They're going to be high paying. They're going to really crank the economy. Now, that would be significant, no question about it. 
And uh, but it's the kind of thing that could pull us out of the economic frying pan. Though again, it's a, an FDR type thing. You've got the government involved in heavily directing a lot of this work, or putting a lot of money into it. But obviously, the, the companies will be involved as well, but under government government supervision in a sense. So this this is a big deal. There'll be a huge resistance to it, but I think it's a good plan. But I think they have one more ace in the hole, and this would be the, the butte. This is the thing that takes the Apollo, new Apollo project and takes it literally off the chart. If they disclose in the spring quickly, they need to disclose quickly because if they don't, the truth embargo starts becoming their truth embargo, and they end up with the same public relations problem that every previous administration has had. Why didn't you tell us right away? Why did you wait a year, two years, three years, four years? They do it right away, then they're the truth tellers. The previous administration was the secret administration. That's good enough for most people. So they do it quickly. Then, with the truth embargo out of the way, they can then move to go get that tech. If they bring the ET technology out of the basements and bring it into play and start then making decisions about how to use it to develop whole new business models and technologies, uh, they then create a technological renaissance un unprecedented in history. And uh, assuming they can keep it under control and not allow it in the hands of people that would turn it into a weapon, it will create a technological renaissance and, and completely re uh, remake America. And since it's coming from here, we'll have a substantial leg up, though I think some of this tech is in the hands of the British and the Canadians, and you'll see some other first world countries. It'll be brought in pretty quickly, and they will then be able to hold out all kinds of incredible promises to the third world and the second world, because this technology, if it's as efficient as we, as we believe it is, you know what I mean by efficient, the amount of energy that can be generated from X amount of space and weight. Right. Sure. Think of a Mack truck engine, but instead of just driving a semi-tractor down the highway, it can elevate the semi-tractor trailer a thousand feet in the air, hold it there indefinitely, and then rock it off at 20,000 miles an hour. That clearly is a Mack truck energy operating at thousands times more efficient. They bring that energy out, it suddenly opens up all kinds of models, desalinization plants, all kinds of things. So they can then assure the third world they're going to have water, they're going to have food, there won't be any starvation. They'll be able to assure the third and second world that we're going to be able to start converting in, in time, won't be immediate eliminate fossil fuels, thus we take the major pressure off the global warming issue, save the tundra, save the ice caps, and on and on and on, and all of this suddenly changes the subject. If you're a terrorist fanatic trying to convince people in the third world that they need to start strapping bonds on themselves to go blow up any first world person they can find, they're going to be saying, why am I doing that? So all of this is right there in the lap of the Democrats if they win in November, and I think that's exactly what they plan to do. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're a little arrogant with Jesus and David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. 
on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, and they're running the X-Conference 2008. We're on our last quarter hour here, so we'll pursue this for a moment, but then David and I are going to want to talk more about the conference and give it a good send-off. David? Well, so Stephen, when I hear when I hear talk about this unlimited energy potential, and on one level, it's very exciting. I might be ridiculous to state otherwise. Yeah, I would hope so. Right? There's only one problem with this. Yeah. If if that's not implemented with a severe, strong policy of population control, the Earth quivers. Planet Earth quivers yeah. with fear at the potential of this because. With all of the free energy in the world, this planet cannot support the number of human beings on it as it is. I totally agree. That you just hit one of the most important post-disclosure questions. I, I can't wait for the post-disclosure world because it, it's going to be an explosion of ideas and thinking and reassessment and reexamination. Unlike everything I've ever seen before. And I think it's going to free us up. It's going to take the shackles off, uh, take the blinders off, the bags off our heads, and everything will be in play. And, and one of the major questions that will be in play pretty quickly, not day one, not day two, but probably a year down the line, is this issue of population. Because very quickly, you will have a, a one camp, one academic intellectual think tank camp is going to emerge and start making the case why this kind of technological transformation makes it possible for us to have not just 9 billion, but 10, 20, 50, 80, 100 billion. And that just ensures that we're going to be able to pour out into the universe with even more people. And who knows, one day we may run the galaxy, whatever. You're going to see this emerge. And on the other side will be people making a different case. I will be on this side, namely, okay, folks. You've just gotten the tech that allows you to solve the some of the worst um, problems that, that, that living people now are going to face in the sure. 21st sure. century. Mm-hmm. Now, take so you've got that fine now. So, so you've got their attention, and you have something to offer them. Right. Now, sell as part of the package that if you want true paradise on Earth, you combine this kind of technological ability with a proper population level achieved through non-coercive, fair and just and equitable means, not by killing, slaughtering people, genocides, and the other crap that will happen if we don't deal with this eventually. We turn the corner, start reducing the population back. So instead of 9 or 12 or 15 billion people, we can end up before the century's over with, a, with perhaps less than 6 billion. Uh, it's all doable. The math is simple. And so we will have essentially a world with unlimited resources for a finite number of people, uh, allowing us to, to live extraordinarily productive and free lives and keep a, and, and an environment that's extraordinarily pristine. All of that's right there for us. But if we fall into that trap of thinking this is an excuse to now mm-hmm. breed ourselves into oblivion, forget yeah. it. Not only that, there's one other caveat here. This idea that the other civilizations out there can allow us to simply explode our population up to 100 billion and then pour out like cockroaches yeah, no, out of it. No. I don't think that's going to happen. So this is this is a great question. I look forward to debating that question at Harvard sometime in the year 2012. <laughs> well, I, I currently teach at Yale, so maybe I can set up something there. Get but me up there, my friend. I'm ready. Here's the thing, though, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I, I hate to bring up those uh, pesky fundamentalists, but you try to tell the fundamentalists, the, the, the Hasidim, you try to tell the fundamentalist Christians that 
they have to limit their population. I mean, you know, you, you talk to a standard Israeli family, they're pumping out children. It's all about repopulating Israel. So you tell them now, oh, you know, we're going to give you all the energy you want, but you can only have one child, and you're going to face the problem the Chinese are facing. On one wow. level, I'm with you on this, Stephen, but on another level, unfortunately, humanity sort of comes flying in with it, it, thousands of years of preconceived notions. And, yes, it would be wonderful to think that the potential of this, just the, the announcement that, by the way, we're not alone in the universe, which, by the way, if anybody believes it at this point, they're obviously delusional. From my point of view, I mean, you know, look into the stars at night. You think we're alone? Jesus, get a grip. You know, not um, alone, and there's, there's hanging out, you know. I mean, yeah, yeah. more people believe there's life somewhere in the universe than believe there's, there, there's ETs here, but uh, the number that believe that ETs are actually here now is 50%. Look, enough, don't worry about the Israelis. They're not that many of them anyway. They can breathe all they want. They're not going to have the impact. China is one of the major bodies of people, and they've been working to control their population, and they're making progress. India is another major uh, component. They are not making as much progress. They need some stimulation. They need some uh, incentive. We've got to work with them. Uh, the Catholics, yeah, look, the Catholics, billion strong, major problem in terms of population growth, but change is underway. Uh, the overall position of the Catholic Church in terms of ETs is very good. They're ready for them. they got no problem with it, and we've known that for some time. But the population issue, which is a post-disclosure issue, that's a little different. So I would think that some of that, the the argument for, oh, wow, we've got, we, we really got, uh, we just got a great gift from the universe, so now let's breed another 20, 20 million Catholics. I think, I, I think we, we, we I, it may not be as bad as we think because the, overall the Catholic Church has taken enormous hits in the last uh, 30 years. Yeah. Um, their doctrine has been assaulted and really pounded on. And uh, I think the overall sentiment is growing uh, that, the Catholic Church is in for a doctrination change. Some people go, what, 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 what? Hey, guess what? There isn't a religion on the earth that hasn't gone through significant doctrination changes, including the Catholic Church, right? Which initially allowed priests to marry, then it didn't. And so if it changes it so they can, so what? So what's going to happen is that, I think there's a good chance the Catholic Church will will change the doctrine and, and, and we will see the Catholics embracing this concept of birth control and population in a greater number. So now we've got, that's three billion people. Now we've got Africa. Africa's a real problem, too, no question about it. Uh, much more complex. However, the first world is going to be able to come to Africa and basically say, look, folks, a new ball game. Hey, you know what? I'll tell you what, I don't want to interrupt this because it is yeah. very intriguing and maybe we can do this on another discussion. But we have sure. only a few minutes left and I want to give you one really, really lengthy opportunity here before we let you go to talk more about X Conference 2008 happening later on in April. So this is your time in the sun. Go ahead and tell us more. We certainly are encouraging people to come, not only to hear the speakers, but to show the flag, to vote with their feet, to say, hey, we, we, we know this issue is important, and we want the press in Washington to see us there in numbers, uh, listening to these issues being discussed in highly intelligent fashion by very smart people. So, it's, it's a, again, it's an advocacy component of Paradigm Research Group's work. So on the weekend of 18, 19, and 20 of April at the Gaithersburg Hilton, uh, we're bringing in an extraordinary group, again, not as large as in the past because the cost is simply too great, uh, but uh, we're, we're going to have uh, seven PhDs, Dr. Uh, Jesse Marcel, Dr. C.B. Scott Jones, Dr. Bruce McAbee, Dr. John Alexander, Dr. Tom Vallone, to address 
uh, a range of uh, subject matter. Uh, a lot of these people are, are insiders, like Alexander, Maccabee, and Jones are going to be talking from that perspective. That's a little new. We will have a banquet on Saturday night with Edgar Mitchell as the principal keynote, backed up by the former defense minister of Canada, Paul Hellyer, backed up by George Nori. George Nori is giving a two-hour special event for stands, uh, which is a fundraiser for PRG, separate ticket, but that's on Saturday as well. He's going to be talking and answering questions and autographing books and stuff. A rare appearance by George. I will be opening a conference on uh, Friday. Richard Dolan will follow me. Robert Emenager, a fellow who had extraordinary intersection with this issue back in the 70s, will be talking. I remember uh, his books at that point in time. Yeah, yeah, he had his moment in the sun. Very sharp guy, had a wonderful life. He's going to be going back and visiting those days. It's going to be a fascinating uh, hour for sure. Uh, Rob Simone and, and Terry Hansen are coming in to talk about the uh, the media and the press. And Grant Cameron is giving a, a key presentation on, on Sunday morning regarding the presidents. There's been a lot happening regarding the presidents, about candidates, Kucinich, Richardson, questions asked on uh, the debates. And then, of course, there's a whole big thing developing regarding Hillary Clinton and the Rockefeller Initiative. I will take some credit for that. Expect her to be asked about that soon, possibly at the next presidential debate. It's only a matter of time. So far, she's been able to avoid the issue, but we know that she knows about it. In fact, Rob Simone, who's one of our speakers, actually talked with her at a fundraiser. He was there as a uh, guest of a very influential person. As a result, he, he, was at a, he was at a main table. One of her advisors and major backers was at that table. She came over and therefore sat down. She didn't know who Rob was, but very quickly he engaged her on the Rockefeller Initiative, asked her about it. She confirmed, yes, it took place. Yes, she met with Rockefeller up at the ranch and so forth. Afterwards, Rob was asked not to say anything about this until after the Super Tuesday primary because they thought they were going to wrap up the election on that day. Mm -hmm. They did not. Now it's a whole new ball game. Uh, Rob is about to talk about this publicly. I will be talking about it. We have the goods in my website, ParadigmResearchGroup.org. If you go there and then go over to the PRG main site, you will actually see the, the link right to the Rockefeller Initiative. And you can see the documents. You can see the players, the people. It's a big deal. It was an effort to end the, the, the embargo under Bill Clinton. I think Clinton certainly considered it. I think he might have done it, but it didn't work out that way. Rockefellers did now, but we have all the records through FOIA confirming that initiative. So uh, Lawrence Rockefeller's legacy may yet be a significant factor in ending the truth embargo. Hillary Clinton's going to have to deal with this if she wants to be president of the United States. There's just too many people prepared to, to put this issue in front of her. I hope that she does. If she does, she'll make history, and somebody needs to make some history here. Uh, Obama has no connection to the issue at all. I think he's a smart guy, and I think that uh, actually he does have a connection to the issue in the sense that he selected as one of his key foreign policy advisors a big new Brzezinski, and Brzezinski was, was, was the uh, national security advisor to, to, to Jimmy Carter in 1977 when Carter initiated two studies. He, he saw all that happen. Uh, Zabrinsky clearly knows about TP presence. You can be assured of that. So uh, there is a connection to the issue for Obama and through Brzezinski. Uh, a little harder to deal with that, but uh, with Clinton, it's a different matter. This business about running for office and wanting to be the president of the, the, the major, of the first world nation, and, and all this, but you can't talk about ETs. I mean, the founding fathers would just would be would just stare at you in disbelief if you said that people were trying to do that. It's got to stop. It simply has to stop because because they they do that and get away with it. They're tempted to get away with much more. And so the list of things they won't address and talk to and speak to and give us our views on is growing and growing and growing. And so we're electing pigs and pokes. We don't know what to get. we're going to get from our people that we elect, and we're not getting what we want, and so things are degrading. This has to end.
if people tell the truth about what they think, if they address the proper issues, then the American people can make the right decisions. If you make the right decisions, you get the right people in office, you get good policies. You get good policies, you get better history. It's all very simple. But somebody's got to stand up and say the emperor is not clothed. The emperor's naked. Somebody's got to stand up and say, there's a guy behind the curtain pulling the strings. they got to stand up and say, there's ETs here. Okay, I'll tell you what, we've reached that point where tell our listeners one more time where they can get more information about X-Conference 2008. Go to the main site, paradigmresearchgroup.org, jump over to the X-Conference through the banner, or go directly to the X-Conference site at x-conference.com. All this stuff is all there. Some people are not on the Internet. I'm sorry. It's, it's hard to deal with people not on the Internet. <laughs> uh, but if they get in touch with Paradigm Research Group, PRG at Par- no, that's right, that's email. Uh, hopefully they'll they'll check it out. Go to, go to the library. If you don't have access to the internet, go to the library. Exactly. You can download a registration form right there, or get the info and, and and call me up, and I'll sign you up or send you a form. So sounds great. Thank back. you so much, Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group, who is also responsible for the fourth X Conference, X Conference 2008. Thank you so much for joining us this week. On the you guys are great. I really enjoy you. You ask good questions, and you're really serious. And uh, as a contactee, also know that that's uh, another reason why this needs to be resolved. Because until then, contactees are out the cold without the proper support that they need. Well, you know what, Stephen? I hope you're right about all this. I have concerns, so I. but I sure as heck hope you're right, man. So do I, my friend. I pass my fate to it. Uh, there's no going back. If I'm wrong, I'll apologize later. <laughs> <laughs> The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.